on page 1,228. We're going to look at verses 16 and 17, but we'll read from verse 13. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 on page 1,228. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. And then these words in particular, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, this is one of the most difficult passages in the whole Bible. Um, can we move it on, please, please? You'll see the, ver- the ver- you've got them in your Bible or in the words, the screen before you. Um, it's difficult for lots and lots and lots of different reasons. But also, I think for, for a lot of you, probably you think sin, death, sin that leads to death, sin that doesn't lead to death. What, what does this have to do with anything? And how relevant is it really to us as a church or to me as an individual? Well, I want to suggest a basic, what we call a hermeneutic, a way of reading the Bible that's fundamental to understanding the Bible. Um, said this before, but keep repeating it so that we, we get the idea. And that is that you have to, when you're reading the Bible, you have to think always about context and who the pa- passage or a particular part of the Bible, who it was written to. So, for example, John, his gospel was written for non-Christians. How do we know that? Because it says at the end of the gospel in John 20, it says, these are written that you might believe and that by believing you might have life in his name. So, John's gospel is written for non-Christians. On the other hand, John's letter is written specifically for Christians. Now, John's gospel, of course, Christians, we get a lot from it. And if you're not a Christian, you're reading 1 John, you can get something from it. But it is written to Christians. And it was written to Christians in a church that were facing a particular challenge. And I want to say it's a challenge that we face in our culture and in our church and in this congregation. There were... There was bad teaching. Uh, I'm hoping that's not the case in this congregation. But there is bad teaching. We get bad teaching. There was bad teaching in, in... going around, and it was influencing the Christians. There were teachers who were saying that sin didn't really matter because it's committed in the body, and what really mattered was the spirit. On the other hand, there were those who went the opposite way and who felt that because they'd done something wrong, something really bad, that they couldn't be forgiven. They shouldn't come to church. They shouldn't be involved, and so on. Some were saying then that they didn't need to be forgiven. They were without sin, And others were saying they couldn't be forgiven. Their sin was so great and their hearts condemned them. And you bear that in mind when you read through 1 John because that's what he's answering. That's what he's dealing with. These letters were written by real people into real situations. But they are letters that are inspired by the Holy Spirit so that God knew that they, were, they would be directly His word to us today in our situation. So when we look at this, we ask just simply, 
How does this directly impact us? What is God saying to us? And I believe that if you're in a church right now where someone was standing up and saying, Lo, I am the Lord, I am speaking to you, and this is what I'm telling you, that that wouldn't be as direct as what you will hear from God's Word speaking to you direct. God knew that you were going to be here. God knew that we were going to be teaching on this passage. God knows everything, and His Word is always applicable to us in our circumstances. And so what we're looking at here is not some kind of esoteric theological problem that Christian geeks look at. It is, it's really, it's, it's something that really goes to the heart of the matter. Now, I say all that because when I began looking at this a couple of weeks ago, I thought, oh, this is a nightmare because how's this, how are these two verses going to, I have to take them together or separate from the rest because they're, they don't directly fit in with something else. And I thought, how does this apply to us? But as I've looked at it, I realized, of course it applies to us. Every word of God applies to us. And here's where the relevance of this comes in. What do you do with a Christian brother or sister who stumbles and falls? Because I, I am personally firmly convinced that the Christian church in Britain and the evangelical church overall, we live in this kind of fantasy world where we play happy families in church and everything's great and everything's wonderful and then we go back into the real world. But the reality is within the church that people do things that are wrong, people stumble and fall, that we too are, are sinners. So what, what do we do when that happens? What do you do with the different kinds of teaching that we get? So we're, we're going to look at that and you'll see how all of this ties in. First of all, how do you deal with a Christian who sins? This passage, the Roman Catholic Church teaching, divides it, uh, takes this passage as the basis for dividing sin into two groups. Venial, uh, that's pardonable if you take mass and if you're baptized, and mortal, which is it's not pardonable at all. Now, the, that's what's become known as the seven deadly sins. They're up there. Wrath, greed, sloth, pride, lust, envy, and gluttony. It must be really tough to be a Catholic because I'm holding my hand up and saying, that's me, the law. I can take mass as much as I want. I can confess as much as I want. There's no way out for me. Now, of course, the Roman Catholic Church does provide a way out. They have another sacrament called the sacrament of penance. Or you can have extreme contrition. I'm not quite sure what extreme contrition is, but I think Martin Luther tried it when he beat himself, literally, with a whip to cause blood to come. Now, you look at those seven sins, wrath, greed, sloth, pride, lust, envy, and gluttony. I suspect most of you will commit them before the end of the day. So, it, 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 you know, it, it doesn't help to be told, these are the ones that can't be forgiven. They're the mortal sins, because then we're all in enormous trouble. I think the Catholic teaching is wrong on this. And I think the Catholic, by the way, Catholic teaching is right on many things, but on sin, it's usually awful. It usually loads people with guilt and doesn't really provide a way out. And on sin here, it's wrong. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All sin is deadly. In fact, if you go through this letter, 1 John 2.2, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Or in chapter 4, verse 10, this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. So, 
what the teaching of the Bible is, is that all sin is deadly in that it all deserves the judgment of God, in that it all stems from pride, it all stems from rebellion against God, and in that sense, it is deadly in, in the most horrendous way. So what's been spoken of here in 1 John 5, 16, a sin that does not lead to death, what is he talking about? Well, I think, let me put it very, very simply. Um, let see if I've got this. Christian sin. That's the th first thing he's saying. He's saying Christians do sin. Earlier on in this letter, he said, if we say we are without sin, we lie. Christian sin. And I'm going to keep repeating that because some of you have this bizarre idea that Christians don't sin, or if they do sin, it's not really a big sin. It's just a wee white lie, and that Christians are basically perfect. But we're not. And you need to grasp that if you are part of this fellowship here, you are part of a company of sinners. And so when you come and you say, oh, I don't know if I can come here anymore because that person was nasty or that person did this or, or um, David, you weren't perfect. You just, I honestly, I mean, I honestly think one of the greatest words in the English language currently is the, because Homer Simpson's got, it's, it's spot on. That's what the Bible says. We are all sinners. Why are you shocked by people sinning? But you don't just turn over that as well. Sin has consequences. Spurgeon says this, we grieve the Holy Spirit even more if we indulge in outward acts of sin. Then he is sometimes so grieved that he takes his flight for a season, for the dove will not dwell in our hearts if we take loathsome carrion in there. The dove is a clean being, and we must not strew the place which the dove frequents with filth and mire. If we do, he will fly elsewhere. What John is speaking about here is the Christian brother or sister who has grieved the Holy Spirit, who sins against God, and who wanders away from God because of that. And that happens. I, I suspect that most people here who are Christians will admit to it. I will certainly hold my hands up and say, yes, that's happened. Being a minister doesn't make you immune from that. You can, you can do things that are wrong, that you know are wrong, and you can live a double life in a sense, which is that you can read the Bible, you can go to church, you can pray, and yet within yourself you're having this battle against sin, and it sometimes is expressed in outward forms, and that sin does have consequences. And what John is speaking about here is a Christian brother or sister who has so fallen, it's public, it's seen, it's known. If anyone has a brother who sins, sees it. You see that sin. It's not going around judging people from inside. It's something that they do that you see that they have done. It causes a great deal of harm. It quenches the spirit. It damages the church. What do you do? Do you write them off? No, you don't. You pray for them. The sinning Christian whose life in Christ is restored by the prayers of the church. You see, sometimes we are far too quick to judge people. We are far too quick to sit in judgment upon things. You see something that's wrong in someone else. You see something that's wrong in the church. You shouldn't react in horror if you're a biblical Christian, because you must know that that's what people are. And you shouldn't react in surprise as though you thought the church was perfect. But you shouldn't react as though ah, it doesn't really matter. You don't sit in judgment but the first thing you do is you get on your knees and you pray for that brother or for that sister because it could be you 
and because you, need, you will need other people to pray for you as well, and because of the witness of the whole church, and so on. And I just simply, simply, simply ask this. If you are a Christian, when did you last pray for a Christian who'd fallen and stumbled and who'd done something wrong? Is your first reaction to go and gossip about it and talk about it with somebody else? Or do you pray for them? Now we're told, some people say, yeah, we know that, we pray for everyone. No, we don't. We're going to be told here there's something we shouldn't pray for. Um, John 17, verse 9. We copy Jesus. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Sometimes when people say, well, yeah, I pray for everybody, I pray for everyone. Well, if your prayer is God bless so-and-so and you've got a list and you go through the whole lot, that's fine. But if your prayer is real prayer, if your prayer is dealing with real people and real issues and coming before a real God, then there are things that it is wrong to ask for and there are things it's essential to ask for. Um, What he's saying here is it is essential to ask for the restoration of a fallen brother or sister. If you see a brother come in and say, don't go and despair yourself and say, oh, everything's terrible and the state of the church is awful and almost there's nobody pure but me. Don't go into that. Don't give up, but get on your knees and pray for them. But there is something that we shouldn't pray for, and that's the difficult part of this verse, the sin that leads to death. Some people understand it in this way. They understand it as literally the sin that leads to death. So in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5, verses 1 to 11, they lied to God, they lied to the Holy Spirit, they were struck dead. And Or in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and the spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Or in 1 Corinthians 11, some of you are taking communion and you're doing it completely in a wrong way. You're basically getting drunk. You're, you are despising your Christian brother and sister. You're not recognizing the body of the Lord and some of you have died because of that. And so some people understand this as saying, don't pray for the dead. In other words, they committed a sin, they died, leave it. That doesn't really fit with the passage, and the reason for that is because he's speaking about spiritual life. And the obvious thing then is referring to spiritual death. So the second area where this is generally taken is in terms of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Luke 12:10, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Mark 3.29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. What does that mean? Now, I think that that is connected with this passage, the sin that leads to death. What is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It's one of the most misunderstood verses in the whole Bible. It's one of the most abused verses, especially by church leaders in authority who say, you speak against me, you're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. I've been accused of that, and I remember as a young and very vulnerable Christian, it was a horrendous experience to think you'd actually done that. What is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? All sins, all manner of sins will be forgiven except the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is the only unforgivable sin? It's not suicide. It's not murder. It's not adultery. You look through the Bible, and there's so much. It's not even denying Christ. So much that is, you'd think, would be unforgivable. It's not killing Christians. It's not persecuting Jesus, which is what Paul did. 
Well, I think we're actually helped by this passage because it says, I'm not referring about sin that leads to death. There is sin um, that leads to death. Now, the sin that leads to death is not one particular act, but it is a state. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 says this, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. What John has been teaching in this whole letter is we are dead in sins and trespasses, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. We've come over to life. He's not now saying you can then commit a sin which kills you spiritually. He's saying that there is something, somebody calls themselves a brother, and what do they do? They, and he's arguing this in his whole letter, they are teaching against what? Go back to verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of Son of God that so you may know you have eternal life. If you believe in the name of the Son of God, you have eternal life. If you don't believe in the name of the Son of God, you don't have eternal life. And the sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to deny the witness of the Holy Spirit and the words of the Holy Spirit and the testimony of the Holy Spirit, which is about Jesus Christ, and to say, no, I do not believe and I will not believe in Jesus Christ. That's not saying that someone who's an unbeliever at this moment in time has committed the unforgivable sin and therefore that's it. It's saying simply if you continue in a persistent state of unbelief, that is the one sin that just will not be forgiven. In verse 17, he's saying this is what sin does. Sin kills. All wrongdoing is sin. There's sin that does not lead to death, a sin that we continue as we become believers, but there is also a sin that cuts off. Numbers 15, verses 30 to 31. Anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord, and that person must be cut off from his people. Because he has despised the Lord's word and broken his commands, that person must surely be cut off. His guilt remains on him. This is fully deliberate, conscious rejection and sinning for the sake of denying the Lord. Calvin calls it hard and bitter resistance, hard-hearted and bitter resistance. And what John is saying is this. He's saying when someone calls themselves a brother and they're in your church and they deny Jesus Christ as he's been taught to us, as he's been brought to us, as he's revealed himself to us, then you do not pray for that brother and pray that God would bless them and God would forgive them for that sin. You do not. You pray that God would stop their mouths because it's the most dangerous thing possible. Perhaps they will be led to repentance. Perhaps they will be like Paul who persecuted But there is nothing more dangerous to the church and therefore nothing more dangerous to the culture than a a church in which false teaching about Jesus Christ is accepted under the name of love and God bless you and it's all got to be the same. I'll give you two examples of that from this week and and if they offend you, live with it. I'm sorry. Um, I was down at the chaplaincy center for the chaplain's welcome. Um, I wonder if I've got it here. No, I don't. And it's so embarrassing, the two booklets. There's a booklet there from the Scottish Interfaith Council, which has Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam as the faiths of Scotland and so on, um, and, a l- and a little bit about Christianity, nothing in the Bible, it's a Christian poem from somewhere, or whatever. And then it has the Pagan Society as well, 
you know, because that's a faith, and we're, we've all got to love one another, and we're all getting on with Mother Nature, and God bless us all, and whoever God is, he or she, or the many of them, or whatever. And it goes on and on and on, and you read it, and it made me feel physically ill. I just said, thought, what has this to do with anything? What has this to do with Jesus Christ? Who's going to read this junk and accept it? It's just, it, it's nonsensical, logically, but that's not even its major problem. The major problem is just simply this. It detracts away from the glory and the majesty and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Jesus is just one God amongst many. And this is being taught as, well, this is, this is what tolerance, this is what everything means. I'm not going to pray that God would bless that. I'm not going to pray that God will bless people who teach like that. I will pray that God will cause them to repent and to wake up because it's killing people. It's just a, it's a sin that leads to death. It destroys people. When you think, have I committed the sin against the Holy Spirit? You almost certainly, if you're bothered about it, you almost certainly haven't. Those most guilty are those least concerned. They don't care. Augustine regarded this sin as final impenitence. If you um, know Dr. Faustus, what does he say? My heart is so hardened I cannot repent. Do you ever reach that point? Can you reach that point? I think maybe, maybe that's, that is what happens. Is, is, is hell not filled with people whose hearts are so hardened that they cannot repent? The sin that leads to death is simply the denial of the truth that you have in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It is unpardoned sin. Chapter 1 verse 7 says this, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There you have it, simply explained. The truth that Jesus, as we believe in Jesus, as we are in Christ, as we have fellowship with one another, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. What is my only comfort? We, say, we said in the catechism, that I'm not my own, but I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins. The only way that your sin is unpardoned is if you refuse to come to Jesus to have it pardoned. And that is the unforgivable sin. There's an old hymn. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? That's what we've got. That's all that we've got. The believer sins but does not commit the unpardonable sin because we sin and we go to Jesus for forgiveness and we know that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners washed beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. We know that. But the sin that leads to eternal death, death is the refusal to come to Christ to have life. So let me apply this just in two ways, and they're very, very obvious ways. First is simply for those of you who are not yet Christians. If you thought Christianity was about, let's all be nice to one another, let's all get on really well, let's, I don't know, sit around a campfire and sing Kumbaya, or you know, just do Christian-y things. I, um, I should say the other piece of heresy I listened to today was I listened to a service from the Greenbelt Festival, and it, right, Greenbelt's meant to be all cutting edge and trendy, and I was just so embarrassed. I just, 
envisaged people walking around with sandals and Jesus shirts and, you know, beards and guitars and just spouting. Some of it was okay, but some, and some I'm, I shouldn't be so negative because there's some lovely Christians there, but just a lot of it was just rubbish. Just flannel, waffle. No, it doesn't, not giving a Christ. You can have any kind of worship you want at one level. Just give us Jesus Christ. Give us his word. Give us the reality, not the religion, not the game, not the trendiness, not the coolness, just Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian, to sin is a serious thing. But the greatest sin that you ever commit is not the sin that if you go and sleep around or even if you were to go and hate somebody or if you were to go and steal, if you were to go and get blazing drunk, if you go and shoot up drugs. Those are not the greatest sins. The greatest sin is this, is to reject the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. It's to trample underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the one Sin that if you persist in will guarantee he who does not believe is condemned already. And if you are not a Christian, I'm saying to you, become a Christian, not so that you can join a religion, not so that you can just feel good within yourself, but so it can, it can be real in your life. And because you've got to answer for that one day, you can't say, you've never ever heard. You've got to answer to God. And, and you know, Jesus is, is there. He's here. And he invites us to believe and to trust in him. But I want also to address this to those of us who, who claim to be Christians, profess to be Christians. And I want to encourage us to pray for one another and not to grieve the Holy Spirit, but to continually seek the wonderful forgiveness of the Lord. We don't have to carry on sinning and we don't have to carry on pretending. We are amongst brothers and sisters. I, this happens a lot, and it is one of the most puzzling things for me and one of the most bizarre things for me. Good Christians, Christian people who are warm and friendly and evangelical and who love the Lord and who love the Bible, and they will come and they'll say, David, I don't think uh, we can stay in the church anymore because, in this church, we need to go to another church because why? Because so-and-so hurt us or because you're sinful or because, you know, and the thing that puzzles me about that is, you're right. Of course, you're absolutely right. But what, what are you doing? Great story is given of Spurgeon again, who always had the great one-liners. Spurgeon was approached by a woman who said, Mr. Spurgeon, I'm leaving your church. I'm afraid that it's too sinful for me. And Spurgeon said, Madam, you may well be right. But when you find the perfect church, please don't join it because you'll only spoil it. This church is awful. We're sinners. You are the church. I am the church. All of us are, and we are sinners. That's what the Bible says. Christian sin. What you do with that, when you discover that, when you're aware of that, you pray for your brother and sister who's fallen and who stumbles and who get things wrong. You don't give up on your faith or your church, or whatever, because of what others have done. The only time you give up on your church, as far as I'm concerned, is this, is when your church ceases to be a church. And it ceases to be a church when it doesn't follow Jesus Christ. And that's a dreadful thing to say about any church, by the way. When you reach that stage. Now, you'd say it. I would say it. 
I'd get up and walk out of a service if the minister denied that Jesus was the Son of God, if he denied the resurrection, if he said the Bible was not the Word of God. Get out of a place like that. Don't stay in and try and evangelize it. Get out. That's what Jesus calls a synagogue of Satan. But don't go the perfectionist route either. I think that uh, it's bizarre because people say they're giving up on their faith. Um, I've met people, never mind just giving up on church. That's one thing. But giving up on their faith because they've met Christians who are sinners. And you go, but your faith tells you that Christians are sinners. So why are you giving up on something? Because it's told you the truth, which you found out to be the truth. We are to live as a community of believers, forgiven and forgiving. We are to pray for one another's restoration and wholeness. We're all broken people. We are to love one another. We are to live in the light and freedom of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, not continually backbiting and condemning each other. We love because He first loved us. We forgive because He has forgiven us. And we live because He has given us life. We are a community of God's people. That means we are a community of broken people, a community of messed up people, a community of people who get things wrong. But we are forgiven. We are ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. And in the midst of all the mess that is in our lives, sometimes the extraordinary beauty of Jesus Christ shines through so that people see They see the reality, and they say, truly, God is amongst you. We are under assault. This is a viciously hostile society to the gospel, and if you don't grasp that, you do not realize where we are at. You're far too at ease in in this world. It's a viciously hostile society to the gospel. And we have to make a stand, not with the weapons of this world, but with following Jesus Christ. And we need to be together and to be working hard and to be serving one another and to be upholding one another in prayer. We don't need to be biting each other's heads off. We don't need to be sitting in condemnation and judgment upon other people. We need to be living for Jesus Christ. And I think that that's what John is writing about here. Pray that God would give those who fall and stumble, life, that they would not grieve the Holy Spirit, that they would be restored. Don't pray that heresy and false teaching would flourish. Pray that unbelievers would become believers, but don't pray that God would bless them in their unbelief. All wrongdoing is sin, but thank the Lord that we have been delivered.